you want to open to Nehemiah 1, we're going to be Nehemiah 1 again here. Starting in verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanai, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame, and the wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So just by way of review, remember we talked about how, what do we, how do we respond when we hear news, you know, here on the news, this is going on over in Afghanistan, or this is going on wherever, what's our response? Is it actual love and concern like their people? Or is it, you know, kind of a, I gotcha, the other party was wrong, I knew it. You know, um, totally different than Nehemiah's response here, which is love and reality and prayer and tears. So that's kind of what we talked about um, before. Let's keep reading here. Verse 5, And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, Though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. So, originally the plan today was to talk about prayer, and I started preparing, and I wanted to go over this word, steadfast love, in verse 5, steadfast love, because Nehemiah is really appealing to this specific idea about God, and you can really see that through his prayer, and it's a really big idea in the Old Testament, and that kind of grew and expanded to where I kind of just split my message in half. So we're going to talk about steadfast love today, and he's appealing to that in his prayer, and then we're going to talk about the prayer in general, just prayer in general, next week. So we're not here for an hour and a half or so. So that's what the plan, even though I originally said we were going to talk about prayer. But I want to start by just talking about you know, I heard one time this question they asked, well, what's the gospel? And somebody answered, and I like this answer, even though the content, it gets the right feeling, even though it's not like a very exact content. It says this, the gospel is one beggar leading another beggar to bread. And I really like that. 
and it gets the feeling right. It's like we're desperate, we're needy, and somebody else is pointing them not to themselves, not to um, a specific organization, but you might say it this way. It might be a little bit better if we said it. The gospel is one beggar leading another beggar to the bread of life, which is Christ. And that, it's pretty amazing, really. What we're saying is we're needy, you know, and we don't have the resources, and I don't have the resources to help you, but I can tell you where to go, and that's to Christ. And you can go to Christ and have your sins forgiven. You can go to Christ have your needs met. You can go to Christ and be changed. And that's what we're doing. But you know what is interesting about that is I can't make you do it, right? And that's kind of what I'm going to do this morning in this sermon is just basically point you to God. And I can't make you eat the bread. I can't make this helpful to you. But if you eat and eat it yourself and you lean on it yourself, you trust in God yourself, then it will be food to you. And the other aspect I want you to notice about kind of that idea of the gospel being one beggar leading another beggar to bread is we kind of are saved by believing a promise. And that's really kind of comes out in Hebrews, but the gospel is really that God promised something, and if you believe it, you can have it. And that's kind of the same idea with that analogy, one beggar leading another beggar to bread. It's like, Somebody, they're saying, somebody promised bread. Let's go. And that's what Jesus is saying. I, Jesus promised to forgive our sins. And Jesus promised to heal us and give us new life, give us his spirit. Um, you know, all the aspects of what the gospel is, he promised it. And then we're saved by simply believing it. And that's really what is going on here in Nehemiah. That's, that's a picture of what happens here in Nehemiah. Nehemiah believes what God promised. And so he appeals that to God. He says, God, you promised. You said, even if we're unfaithful, but we come back to you, you'll gather us again. You'll hear our prayers. And here we are praying. And so he's believing this promise, and it does result in salvation in the physical sense for Jerusalem. You know, the walls are rebuilt, and the people of God are gathered and they actually bring in people from you know all over Israel to re-inhabit Jerusalem again after you know they rebuild the walls and that's kind of a smaller picture of what Jesus does in, in the New Testament you know and it's a picture too of how we're saved we hear what God said what God promised and then we just believe it and that's really what's going on here and I want to focus in on this one word steadfast love in verse 5 Steadfast love. And the reason I want to focus in on it is it's a really big word in the Old Testament. And it really gives us an idea of what the people in the Old Testament, the Israelites, thought about God. How they thought about Him. And what they were trusting and what they were leaning in on throughout the Old Testament. And I bet if you you know read through your Old Testament, if you're reading through a Bible plan, Bible reading plan, or you just read even just a little bit in the Old Testament, I bet you read this word this week, steadfast love. It's, it's over and over and over in the Old Testament. And it's a big idea. It's huge. And so it's really important that we understand it. You know, we don't want our Christianity or our understanding of God to be this gray blur. You know, we talked about, like, grace when we talked about what the word grace means. It's like I grew up in church, but I had just had this foggy idea of what these things meant. It's like, well, I know it has something to do with God. 
It's the same with you know many of the concepts in the Bible. We can kind of have a general fuzzy idea, but we're not really sure what it means. And this steadfast love can be one of those. And so I want to just walk through you today what this word means, steadfast love, and how important it is in the Bible. All right, so that's all just introduction to this one word that Nehemiah is appealing to, and it's related to the character of God. This word, steadfast love. I'll tell you what it is in Hebrew if you're interested. If you're not, just zone out for the next 20 seconds. It's uh, the word hesed in Hebrew. So the interesting thing is that the translators had trouble basically translating this into English, so they had to make something up. And so your Bible might say steadfast love. The NAS says something different. Does anybody? Loving kindness. Loving kindness, so that's different. And then uh, Christian Standard Bible, the CSB, says faithful love. And there's a couple other different ones. But they're trying to get across a complicated idea that we don't have a word for in English. And so I'm going to read you a short quote here from uh, this guy named Vine who is talking about the meaning of this word. And it's a little bit complex. And you can hear how the translators are struggling with how to translate this. So here's what Vine says about hesed or steadfast love. In general... We may identify three basic meanings of hesed, and the three meanings are always intact. Strength, steadfastness, and love. And any understanding of this word that fails to suggest all three inevitably loses some of its richness. Love by itself easily becomes sentimentalized or universalized apart from the covenant. Yet strength or steadfastness suggests only the fulfillment of a legal obligation. And steadfast love refers primarily to the mutual and reciprocal obligations between parties of a covenant, especially Jehovah and Israel. But steadfast love is not only a matter of obligation, it is also a matter of generosity. It is not only a matter of loyalty, but also of mercy. This word implies personal involvement and commitment in a relationship beyond the rule of law. So, when you hear this word, and when you read over this word, I want you to not just kind of read past it, I want you to think about it as you notice it in your Bible reading, and also understand that this word has a lot of meaning behind it. And it's, all, it's the idea of love that's committed, you could say loyal love, steadfast love, but it's, it's committed love, and a lot of times it's tied in with the idea of covenant. Like, I promise... To love you, you know, and I said I'm going to do it. You could think of a marriage. You know, we don't have a lot of covenants in the modern world, but we still have marriage. And it's a covenant between a man and a wife. And it's really a good picture when you think of this word. You're committing to love that person and to be and to uh, love them. You know, think about the vows we usually use that are often used in sickness and in health, richer and for poor, um, till death. Do, you know, do us part. I can't remember all the details, but basically the idea of, you know, you're committing, I know that's not word perfect, but you're committing to love this person no matter what, whether you're rich or you're poor, whether it's good or whether it's bad, whether you're sick or whether you're healthy, I'm going to love you and I'm going to stick with you for life. And that might, it might be hard, it might be wonderful, and it might be up and down combination of the things, but I'm committing and I'm going to stick to it. And that's what God does in the Old Testament. 
And that's what God does in general, is he commits to love us. I'm going to love you, regardless. And so, that's the idea of covenant. God makes a covenant with Israel. And it makes sense of this, the whole arc of the Bible and the whole Old Testament. It's like, you read the Old Testament and you have the idea in your mind, subconsciously, that God really loves good people. Then you're going to be really confused. Because you're going to start reading and you're going to see, you know, Genesis, you know, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then you come to find out Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were all really, really messed up people. It's like, what is God doing here? And it's confusing. But if you realize the idea of steadfast love, it's God committing to love people no matter what. I'm going to love you. I love you despite you. And you, it's a covenant. It's the idea of covenant, loyal love. So when you, when you hear the word steadfast love, here's what I want you to think. Covenant, loyal love. Or covenant, steadfast love. Why is this so important? The first thing I want you to know about this word in, in this context, but also in the whole Old Testament, is that the Bible is the story of a God who promised to love messed up people. Or we could say sinful people. But the Bible is the story of, of a God who promised to love messed up people. You know, we see this here first in Nehemiah in verses 6 and 7. Nehemiah confesses his sins here. He says, he confessed the sins of the people of Israel. He said, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house, we have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. We don't know exactly what this means because Nehemiah doesn't go into detail, but we know that Nehemiah is there in Babylon and he stopped really caring about following what God asked them to do, he and his family and then Israel in general. And he's confessing that. I have acted very corruptly, whatever that means. We don't know. But you can imagine... You know, here's, here Nehemiah is, cupbearer to the king of Babylon. And apparently, some way that he got there was his family just bought in to Babylon, you know, and they stopped caring about following God um, with their whole hearts. And they weren't trying to follow what God had asked them to do anymore, neglecting, neglecting definitely the commandments. He says that clearly, but also acting very corruptly. So, neglecting what he ought to have done, but also acting in ways he definitely shouldn't have. You know, sins of commission and omission both. So they had drifted far. But that's not just the story of Nehemiah. That's the story of every human being. But the Old Testament, particularly, a God who has promised to love messed up people. Like I said already, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you read through Genesis, and there's a lot of it. It's hard to even preach through with kids around. You know, it's, it's really, really messed up. And it's like... The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and Jacob, it's like these guys and their kids do horrible, unspeakably terrible things, and God's with them, God's helping them, God's protecting them over and over and over and over. And it doesn't stop there. Think about the New Testament. Think about Jesus and the disciples. They weren't, you know, the all star team, right? They were messed up. They were fishermen. They didn't get it a lot. They. You know, think about Peter. You know, he gets he gets a bad rap. You know, but a lot of them had re- re- a really hard time even understanding what Jesus was teaching. And he keeps saying to them, "Do you not understand it yet? Did, didn't 
Didn't you understand about the loaves and the fishes? And over and over and over, there's these struggles. Remember when they were arguing amongst themselves about who was the greatest? And Jesus asked them, what are you guys talking about? And they didn't answer. I mean, they were messed up people, which is good news if you're messed up too, which we are. Um, we're messed up. We're sinners. And if you, if you think it stops there, you might just go through and read the book, um, Corinthians, and see that even after this, God sent the Spirit and, and we see Jesus resurrected and we see all his teaching laid out and it, you know, it's much more clear, there's still a lot of messed up uh, people in churches and churches, whole churches that are very messy, very sinful, and God's there. And God's not done with them yet in any of those cases. God wasn't done with Abraham when he told uh, the king that Sarah was his sister because he got so scared. God wasn't done with the disciples when they were arguing about who was the greatest. God wasn't done with the Corinthians when they uh, did all the things that they did um, and were just trying to gain status through even their things in the church. God wasn't done with any of them. And God committed to love every single one of them. And it's a story of God. The main point is not how great the people in the Bible were. It's how great God was in dealing with all these people. And that's the word, steadfast love. It's like, God, I commit to love you despite you. Nothing. I'm not doing this because you're awesome. I'm not doing this because you're great. I'm not doing this because of what you can do for me. I'm doing this because I'm committing to love you. And that's the story of the Bible. And you see that. In the Old Testament, you see that in the New Testament, and you can see that in your own life, and we can see it in our own lives, in Nehemiah's life. So that's the first thing I want you to think about when you think about steadfast love. is it's, It's a word about loving messed up people. And you can see why in the New Testament. Sometimes they translate this. So when they quote the Old Testament, they switch from Hebrew to Greek, right? And sometimes they change this word in just to the word grace, which is not what you'd expect them to translate it as. You'd almost expect it to be love or something like that. But the 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 apostles, you know, when they quote this word, a lot of there's times when they just translate it grace, and you can understand why because it's God committing to love people despite all their faults and failures, and that that's a good summary of grace. <laughs> that's that's an example of grace. And so not only does God commit to love, the second thing I want you to know is that God invites sinners to be his people. Look at verse 9 in Nehemiah 1. This is the second half of that promise. You know, God says that I'll scatter you if you're unfaithful, but, it starts with a but in verse 9, but if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, Though your outcasts are in the outermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. So there's the promise that he's going to bring them back to Jerusalem, no matter how far out they've gone. And he, it's God inviting sinful people back in, saying, I'm going to love you, and even if you go far, as far as you can go, um, if you want to return, if you want to know me, you can come. God is inviting sinners to be his people. And we see that. You could, all those examples I gave of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Nehemiah here, the disciples in the New Testament, Corinthians uh, later on, they're all examples of people that were messed up and God's inviting them in. Like, despite all that, you can be my people. I'll draw near to you. I'll gather you together and I'll be with you. 
And specifically here, he uses Nehemiah. What a good example of grace here. This guy who, by his own admission, has deeply compromised his faith. He's saying that. I've acted very corruptly, me and my family. And and that's the guy that God is saying, you know what, I'm going to take you. And it's likely that either Nehemiah's dad or his grandpa even had an opportunity to go back to Israel, and they just said no. So think about that. You're in Babylon. You have an opportunity to go back. We don't know how old Nehemiah was, so we can't calculate exactly, um, you know, if it was his dad or his grandpa or what or whatever. And the there's a, some wiggle room on the dates because it's you know 500 BC ish, 400 to 500 BC. So we don't know exactly, but it's likely that either Nehemiah's dad or his grandpa had an opportunity to go back to Israel and just said, no, I'll stay in Babylon. Which kind of gives you a feel for how deeply that they had compromised when he says we've acted very corruptly. It's like, do I want to go back to the place where God promised to dwell or do I want to stay here in Babylon? And he's like, yeah, I want to stay. I want to stay in Babylon. And so the reality is that's the guy who's, who has entered into that himself by his own admission and yet God's saying, I want to use you and uses him to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. What a good example of grace, of steadfast love. God loves, he's committed to love um, his people, despite them, despite our failures, our sins, and then he's inviting us back in, despite our failures and sins. And God delights to use people, messed up people, doesn't he? And if you read through the to the Old Testament and the New Testament, you can see that over and over and over. God's inviting these people who are coming out of really messed up backgrounds, who are still you know, working through all, all that and not perfect uh, by any means. He's inviting them in to his work. He's inviting sinners to be his people and to use them. So that's good news, isn't it? Praise the Lord for that. And then what do we do with that? Well, we place our faith in the God of steadfast love. It's like, here's this God who committed to love us, right? In the old covenant, we see that, but now we have the new covenant. We have Jesus who committed to wash away our sins. If we trust him to, to become his, the children of God, to be, have our sins washed away, to be new creatures, to be a part of the people of God, to be resurrected one day, all the things that go into um, becoming a child of God, having your sins washed away, all these things are promised and sealed in the new covenant, the new promise of God's love, the blood of Jesus, through the blood of Jesus. And so you see why the idea of the gospel really is just believing a promise, a promise about what? What's the promise? Well, it's a promise about the love of God. And you see how this is, you see how in the Old Testament, this could carry through. It's like God's promising to love this people despite them. And in the New Testament, God is promising to love us despite us. And we're saved by believing that, by believing a promise. Hebrews 4, I'll read you these couple verses here from Hebrews 4, makes it really clear that we're saved by believing a promise. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us, just as it came to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, for they, for they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. So it's like, here comes this promise. And you can either enter in and have rest, you can be saved, or you cannot. 
And how does that happen? You believe or you have faith, just like David was talking about. Same word. Um, like the word hammer is what you do, and hammer is what you hold. So that same uh, idea in Greek. Believe and faith are the same word, just one's a verb and one's a noun. And so we believe a promise, and that's how we're saved. The promise of new life in Christ, the promise of forgiveness of sins, the promise that will adopt us. Uh, here's another verse from Hebrews that gets this across. Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. Hebrews 8.6. So you see this idea of the old, they were leaning into an old covenant, an old promise of God. God's saying like, um, I promise I'll love you. I'll be your God and you'll be my people. And then in the New Testament, we've got a new covenant with new promises and better promises and they're all founded on Jesus. Um, Jesus is who we're believing in. You know, Nehemiah here obviously didn't know that, um, but he was still leaning into the same thing, and we can look at his example, and we can still follow after it. And it's like, he believed what God said, despite his own weaknesses, failings, sins. He believed God, and you can too. Now, I want you to think, now that's kind of just a summary. Now let's just go through and just kind of maybe process this for a second. One, like, how does this fit into the whole Bible? And then, how do I apply this to my life? So, steadfast love, covenant loyal love, covenant steadfast love. God's promising to love us, okay? And think about all the verses. You probably even have some verses memorized that have the word steadfast love in it. It's like, now think about what they mean, right? Think about what it meant when God said in Exodus... He proclaimed his name, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. It's like God is abounding in this covenant loyal love, committing to love people that are unlovely. And there's so many. Actually, this might be a little different. Maybe nobody will say anything. Anybody have one that comes to mind right off the top of their head? Steadfast love. You want to say the verse because I don't say it. You want to say the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. That's really good. There's another one. What was it? Yeah, let's look. I'm just going to turn there and read a couple of those. It's so rich. I mean, we could probably do this for the rest of the day, but. Psalm 136 here. Yeah, this is really good. <laughs> That's a great example. Okay. Uh, 136, yeah. Let's just read like 1 through 3. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his steadfast love endures forever. That's really good. Jump down to 23 here. It is he who remembered us in our lowest state, for his steadfast love endures forever, and rescued us from our foes, for his steadfast love endures forever. He is, 
He gives food to all flesh for his steadfast love endures forever. Yeah, that's good. That's okay. Um, hopefully you'll notice it as you read through the Old Testament going forward. You know, the first time Jess and I were like made aware of this word, you know, and what it means and kind of this explanation was from this commentary called um, it's First Samuel, a first commentary on First Samuel by Dale Ralph Davis and when I was talking to Jess this week about what I was going to talk about, she said something like yeah, there's not very many times where I read something that changes how I read the Bible every week and but this did and I would say the same for me that Basically, every week I think about this word, steadfast love, different, and it changes how I see God in the Old Testament. And it just comes up over and over and over, and so I hope it sticks with you, and as you read through, you think about this. The covenant, loyal love of God, how he promised to love Israel, and how he promised to love you. I'll read you a quote here from Dale Ralph at Davis. That's, re- that's really good. If Israel receives steadfast love, it will only be because it flows from Yahweh's heart, because of what slash who he is, rich in steadfast love and faithfulness. Hence, steadfast love really passes over into grace, which is, as my father used to say, something for nothing when we don't deserve anything. You will never perish when you fall into the abyss of God's loving kindness. Ultimately, that is our only recourse. And of course, the one rich and steadfast love has come near to his people. You seek steadfast love and you simply find yourself in the arms of Jesus Christ. He's talking here about how David and Jonathan had a covenant. Um, They made a covenant. uh, It's not basically a friendship and to do good to even their descendants. Don't forget what David has taught you. Um, in, confusion, in confusion and trouble, take yourself to the one who has made a covenant with you. He is the only recourse in uncertainty. So he draws the connection where David had this covenant with Jonathan, and when he's in trouble, he runs to the person he knows. Like, I know this person's out for my good. I know this person cares for me and is going to do good to me. Uh, we made this covenant, you know. And so he runs to him but ultimately that's just a shadow of us running to God the person we know has promised and committed to love us despite us so we can run there when we are needy and even when we've sinned we run to God because his steadfast love isn't conditional on your performance it's it's just simply uh, what he promised think about there's so many of these verses that are connect forgiveness of sin to steadfast love. And you can kind of see that. When you hear the word steadfast love, at least for me, I don't immediately think forgiveness of sins. But when you know that it's about committed, covenantal love um, on the part of God, you can see how forgiveness of sins has to be a part of it. Because God's committing to love sinful people. And so verses like, I'll give you a couple of verses here. Micah seven eighteen says, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever. Why? Because he delights to show steadfast love. It's like, I'm going to 
forgive your sins because I committed to love you. That I delight to show steadfast love, to love despite your response. Isaiah 54.10 says, For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. So how does this apply to our lives? Well, one, we just talked about, as we read through Scripture, just processing and thinking about the meaning of this word and not just reading steadfast love, but thinking about what it really means. But then also, how does it apply to our lives? It deeply applies to our life, you know. It reflects what, who God is and how do I relate to him. Andrew Murray, a lot of quotes here, this is my last one, so I won't read any more after this. So this is an Andrew Murray quote about this idea. One of the words of scripture, which is almost going out of fashion, he says, is the word covenant. There was a time when the keynote of theology and the Christian life of holy men there was a time when it was the keynote of theology and Christian life among holy men. We know how deep in Scotland it entered into the national life and thought. It made men to whom God and his promise and power were wonderfully real. And it will be found still to bring strength and purpose to those who will take the trouble to bring all their life under the control of the inspiring assurance. Listen to this. Under the control of the inspiring assurance that they are living in covenant with a God who has sworn faithfully to fulfill in them every promise he has given. How does this affect your life? When you see that God promised, he just, he more than promised, right? Not just a passing promise, but a covenant, like a very solemn promise, a very serious promise. I promise that I'm going to love you forever, steadfast. I'm not going to depart. I'm going to be there. I'm going to, even when you're off in the distance, even if you rebel, I'm going to come after you. How does that affect, how would that affect your life? It's like, he's saying there's an inspiring assurance that, they're, that you're living in this committed relationship with God. It's like God has promised this deep connection between you and Him. Period. And it and it's a connection of love and grace. God has promised to love us despite our sins. Think about how that would affect your life every day, you know? We lean on what? What do we lean on? What is Nehemiah leaning on here? What do the Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob lean on? What do the disciples lean on? What does the New Testament churches lean on? Do they lean on their performance? How well they know the Bible? No, they're leaning on God's love. Promise to mess up people. If, if that is the case, then we can just run to Him and run to Him and run to Him and run to Him. Think about what it means in terms of your openness to listen and obey God and to be used by God. God uses messed up people, flawed people, sinful people, and He doesn't just use them. He loves them. He loves them. If we turn to God like Nehemiah, it's like, here, here I am. Like, 
the cup, think about this. He's the cupbearer to the king of Babylon. Like the the you know, if you read Revelation and you read the old you know, the Old Testament, Babylon is like this symbol, it becomes it becomes like a metaphor for evil the evil world apart from God. And here's this guy who is the cupbearer to the king of Babylon. And that and if you you know, you read Revelation, there's all these the dragon and the lady um, who rides the dragon who's they're all related to Babylon. And because Babylon becomes this idea of being far from God. And he, what does God want to do? He wants to take the person who's the cupbearer to the king of Babylon. He wants to show them his promises and then invite them to believe it, invite them in. And if that's true for him, what about us, right? Like there's no one in here that's sin beyond God inviting you, drawing you, keeping you, and using you. If God can use Nehemiah, it's like, it's almost like you couldn't make up this as a parable, you know? It's like, imagine there's a guy who's the cupbearer to the king of Babylon. You know, when to make it into a modern day analogy, that'd be in the Jews' mind like saying like, for us it might be like Hitler's right hand man, you know? It's like the worst of the worst, you know? Notoriously proverbially evil. It's like God wants to use him. God loves him. God's going to bless others through him. That's you. And that's me. If we trust, if we believe the promises right there, God's offering. This idea of covenant, steadfast love. So you, what does that mean for you? I mean, where you're at, at your job and with your family. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised you know, if there's dads who are like, man, I just feel like, how do I really lead my kids? You know, it's like I messed up here, I messed up here, and then I try and read the Bible with them. It's like they just probably are going to think I'm a hypocrite, you know, and then just give up, you know. Well, what about this idea? It's like, look, set, the, the story of the Bible is not about really, really great dads who are awesome all the time and don't sin. The story of the Bible is messed up dads who come and trust Jesus and he loves them anyways. And you know, you can have confidence. You can go forward. You can read the Bible with your kids. Maybe it's at work. Same same idea. Maybe at work you're hesitant to share the gospel. It's like, well, yeah, but look at all my faults and failings. You know, it's like, well, isn't that exactly what the Bible's full of? People with faults and failings trusting into God of steadfast love. Students with your professors or with your friends. It's like. You're, you're flawed, you're not perfect, you're not going to do it perfect, but you know what? It's not about you. It's never been about you. It's always been about the God of steadfast love who loves, who loves people who are weak and flawed. And so it's perfect that he's sending a flawed and weak person to tell others about him. And we can be honest about that. And finally, the last way we can apply it to our lives, this last thing, is as we pray. Right? This is his this is in the midst of a prayer. When you pray, there is so much certainty. If you're you're crying out to the God who promised to love you and you're believing that promise, there's so much certainty that he's going to hear you and he wants to answer you. I'll I'll give a pair like kind of a 
modern comparison. So, like I said, the only real covenant that we have that's common is like the covenant of marriage. Okay, and there's kind of this is kind of a side note, but you know, there's a lot. There's interesting statistics on how many people are living together before marriage. They're not making a covenant. You know, it's like let's basically be married, but let's not commit. Let's not actually commit to be married. And it's interesting the statistics on how they're le- you know less satisfied with their relationship and more likely to break up and all these uh, things that well one it just shows that we should listen to God and He knows what He's talking about but two uh, it just shows how sad really um, love that's just self focused is you know it's like it's just about me and is there anything better out there for me and I want an open door at any time to just jump ship and find somebody else. And then there's a covenant, you know. There's someone who said, no, I'm going to be with you in sickness and health. I, I'm committing to love you no matter what. And we're going to be married till death to us part. And that's that. So those two, think about those two kind of scenarios. And imagine one of them gets really, really sick. One of the people gets really, really, really sick where they have to be taken care of all the time. And, you know, maybe even, you know, like nurses come in and just... It's just hard. How would the person who's in this relationship, they're just living together, the person isn't committed, you know, has never wanted to commit, like they're just, you know, there and let, until something better comes along. How do you think they're going to feel, the sick person? It's like they're going to feel like, man, I don't have to, anything to offer. Like, is this person going to leave? What if they say that to them? Like, are you going to stay? Like, are you going to be here? And they say, well, I can't commit to anything. Okay, think about that side. And then think about the other side, the person who is married and the person committed and they say to him, you know, this is really hard and I know it's really hard and I'm just draining, you know, I'm not giving, I'm just taking from you. And the person responds, um, you know, I said, in sickness and in health, and I meant it, and I'm glad you brought it up because I just want you to know, like, I love you, and I meant every word of that, and I mean it even more now, and I'm, I love you, and I'm going to stay with you. I'm going to be here for you. <laughs> you see the difference? I mean, it's like a world of difference. The person that is absolutely committed and promised and, and made a covenant, and the person that's not. It's like when you pray, you're talking to the other one. You're talking to God. You're talking to God who promised. And he's like, he's glad when you bring it up. He's like, yeah. You, know, you remember that covenant? I'm glad you're thinking about it. I'm glad you're appealing to it. I'm glad you're saying, God, remember what you said? Because I did mean it. Right? How, how secure would you feel? You know, if you're the sick spouse and you say, like, you promised in sickness and in health. And the person's like, yeah, I'm really glad you brought that up. Because I meant it. That's like, Wow. It's like, yeah, that sounds good. That's the way God feels about you. You know, it's like you're coming to God. He loves you. And so you can appeal to this covenant. You can be certain God meant what he said. He's going to stick to it. God is gracious. God's compassionate. God will forgive your sins. All the things he said that will do in the New Testament, hit the blood through Jesus, he meant it. And so when we pray, it's like this confidence, like, you know, that song about coming boldly to the throne of grace, it's like, or, you know, uh, that's not the one. Um, that's the verse. I'm trying to remember. Before the throne of God, but I, I have a strong 
and perfect plea. You know, it's like, yeah, I got God promised, and God doesn't lie, and God said. And so I, I know that he hears me. I know that he's involved in my life. I know that he's going to wash away my sins because he promised. And so just very thankful. And I, and, uh, I just hope that this affects your Bible reading, it affects your life, and it affects your prayers. And, and this is what Nehemiah is appealing to. And just I want you to notice as you read through, it's like it's not just Nehemiah. Like this is a big deal in the whole Bible, but especially in the Old Testament. This is the way people thought about God. This is the way people related to God with this certainty because of God's promise, his covenant, his steadfast love. And so we can come before him with confidence and we can lean into him in our failings and our weaknesses every day in in our prayers. And so let's pray together here. Father, we are thankful for all your promises and for the Bible and for your word, for your people. I just pray you'd have mercy on us. Uh, we want to believe what you said, and here we are. Uh, would you make these things real to us every day? And if there's anybody who just uh, just doesn't really believe this or doesn't really experientially feel it um, day to day that you care and you love them, I pray you'd help uh, mightily, and I pray you'd make it real to them. Um, we just look up to you and just think about all your promises. Would you be uh, doing what you said? You said that you'd protect us like the pupil of your eye, and um, here we are. We need help every day. We need to be protected from sin in our own heart, from the world, from discouragement, from um, Temptation, just thousands of things. We need you every day. Please help us, protect us, just like you said you would. And um, I do pray for, especially our kids, uh, kids in the church that don't know you, that aren't leaning in to what you said. They don't believe the promises. They're not living based on um, your grace and forgiveness. And I pray that that would be the reality. Would you save our kids and that they might trust you and know you? I pray you'd help us this week just to be a light in the world and salt in the earth. We need help. We can't do it. We need you to come in and, and do it. We're thankful. We love you. We're thankful, Jesus, to you for dying on the cross for us despite our sins and because of our sins to forgive us. And Father, we're thankful that you sent Jesus to die. We ask these things in your name. Amen.